Hello and welcome to the LA Venture Podcast, where David Waxman and Minnie Ingersoll, partners and investors at 10110. We've watched Los Angeles grow from a sleepy tech backwater to a bustling mecca of startup opportunity. Through conversations with fellow investors and a few other special guests, we'll deliver an insider's view of the LA tech scene. Dustin Rosen is here with us today. He's the founder and managing partner at Wonder Ventures, a pre-seed fund here in LA. Wonder has participated in some of LA's best startup successes, investing early in companies like Clutter, Tala, Airmap, and many others. Thanks for being here, Dustin. Thank you. Thank you both for having me, and uh, I'm really excited to get this going. Why don't we get it going then? Let's let's get it going with you telling us a little bit about who you are, help our listeners get to know you. I started a fund here in L.A. called Wonder Ventures, and it's a culmination of all my experience in technology in L.A., um, I moved to LA part of the fun story actually to work in the mailroom at the William Morris talent agency for, uh, the old entourage HBO TV show fans. I was Lloyd answering phones, hmm. um, fun year of experience, but not the right fit for me. But luckily the agency started a venture fund. Um, I was the only person who raised my hand to get a job from talent Hollywood to tech and venture capital, which I think 10 years later would be a very different experience where lots of people want to now get into venture capital and allowed me to set me off on my career where I spent two years as an associate at a venture fund and then about 10 years ago started uh, my own startup. So it was called Pose. It was one of the first mobile shopping apps on the iPhone. We had 10 million downloads. I had a 30 person team in Santa Monica, Um, kind of a hot startup for a hot second. Mm -hmm. And then quickly, not quite as hot, and we end up selling the business in 2013, more of an aqua hire than a big exit, which I'm always really honest with founders about. I think there's too much kind of overblowing of people's exits. And started Wonder Ventures in 2014 as I looked around LA and said there's just not a lot of great early capital. Um, I think angel investors in LA are different than the Bay Area, and the first you know half a million to a million dollars is the hardest thing for people to raise. And so Wonder Ventures, we aim to be the best earliest check in LA, and uh, we also happen to have our favorite co-investors like 10110 that we love uh, co-investing with. Are there any lessons, particular lessons from Pose that you carry forward? I, I would say there are thematic things specific to the business we built that I explicitly don't invest in. Although I actually try to take like one call a month with a similar, you know, social or shopping or mobile founder and explain. Um, and there are two things. One is I don't believe content and commerce mix. Um, we raised at a time where that was a very hot thesis and we were at the forefront of it. Um, I think people are either browsing content or deep down the funnel ready to buy. And the optimal blend of the two is in a product that we think exists. We think you're, you know, even a Pinterest is kind of the closest you get. We were competing with them. I think that's a content place. I think people browsing, 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 ad models work there. But the actual shop, if Pinterest was valued on their conversion directly attributable to them, Uh, they wouldn't have a very good business. And so that was certainly where we failed. We tried to make that work, and and I yet to see anyone really truly succeed in it. So Wonder Ventures is very explicitly pre-seed, and um, that's that's a relatively new term, so I'd love to To hear your your definition (laughs) of pre-seed and and why you chose that. Yeah, so I love giving this explanation because it it, it also was new to me um, in that I... Uh, started this because of a lack of early funding in LA. And so our fund one was writing fifty to $100,000 checks. We saw ourselves as filling an angel investor gap in LA. 
with those checks. Um, over time, we saw a few things. One, that there was this lack of angel investors in LA that we knew, but it was even more dire than I first expected. And therefore, you often found a bunch of angels that couldn't find a lead. Who was going to set the price for this? Who was going to lead it? And so with our fund two, we can now write checks up to half a million dollars. But most importantly, and exciting for me, I can now lead that round. I can write a term sheet. I can price it out, negotiate with the founders, and catalyze this angel round, which is actually more where I like to think of it versus pre-seed, but we needed something to define earlier than seed. Um, there were no letters before A, so we invented seed, and there were no, what do we do before seed? Um, to be honest, the evolution is is what you guys see as well, is everything's gone up stack. So my first you know, series A round, if you will, or seed round was one, $1 million for Pose on a $4 million pre. That's now a pre-seed round. That's what Wonder Ventures does all day. And the seed rounds are three on 10. My Pose Series A was three on 10. And so just a 10-year shift in valuations and what we call things. Cool. And are you guys, so are you writing term sheets and pricing rounds usually or? Yeah, we, you know, because we're early, people always assume we're doing notes, but, you know, I'm a believer in understanding exactly what your own, having delineated share classes, the cost basis of doing a note versus a a priced round is often the explanation of why people do notes. It's not that different, especially if you have a good lawyer for your company who's deferring fees, who's in it for the long run, not trying to make money on your pre-seed round. Um, those costs should be pretty similar, and so we like to price rounds when we can. That's great. And I, do most entrepreneurs prefer that, or I, how? What are the sort of the trade-offs? I bet that's a conversation. It is. It is. You know, entrepreneurs. Um, it, it's it depends usually it's a pretty quick conversation their lawyers are all for especially like i said if they're you know experienced venture lawyers they're like we're happy to do either the price actually isn't that big a difference um some entrepreneurs have read the yc mantras on safes and things like that and they have a strong opinion at the end of the day we're probably not going to fight an entrepreneur if they feel that strongly about it um but i i'd say that's one in ten that actually push back if we're willing to do the work and they don't see a major time or cost difference do you create a board um, I don't create a board. Uh, we proactively don't take board director seats. I love taking board observer seats. All the fun of going to the board meeting, helping the company without the kind of long-term implications of being a director. Um, but I do start to help the companies at that early stage have some cadence with meetings, right? If you work with me for a year and you've never had a board meeting before and you raise a series A, you're going to be not prepared. But if we have every six to eight weeks, some kind of cadence, some amount of deliverables, it's great preparation for where they're going. So you take the board seat, uh, or you take the board observer seat, yes. right? And I guess it saves you a little hassle down the road. Is that, or? Um, yeah, we do try and keep those board observer seats. I think um, it's amazing over time how different follow-on VCs care about these things. Um, I certainly understand the, I guess, one downside, which is it's another voice in the room. And if you want to control the boardroom and you don't want someone else talking in it, you don't want them there. But we, you know, pride ourselves on being really founder-aligned. And so our founders usually are willing to fight for us for a arguably ceremonial position of board observer and staying in the rooms. Um, and it's important for me and enjoyable for me to do that. But it's also a non-specific uh, director slot where if at some point the scale and my commitments don't allow me to be at every meeting, it's it's okay and understood. Do you consider a company sort of handed off after a seed round is done, or what, how do you... I would say I thought going into fund two, which was this like lead pre-seed fund, that I'd do more handing off at the seed round. Um, over two years of doing those deals, 
it's more the series a which we're just starting to get our first series a's that are the handoff happens those come those series a funds come in really well prepared have a thing they want to do take ownership at the seed round i'd say it's 50 50 we have some seed investors that are often more closer to series a that come in and really take great hands-on approach and we have some seed investors that they're not based in la and i'm still doing the the heavy lifting which i like doing although i'm you can start to see the scale challenges as a vc of having too many heavy lifting companies along the way yeah so i'm going back a second which is when you were talking about filling that void um and you know in your first fund writing 100k checks which in i'm coming from san francisco would often be the role that an angel would play what do you see going on with the angel scene in la and how can we how can we cultivate that yeah, this is something I talk a lot about. It's it's inherent to the pitch for Wonder Ventures, which is we don't have enough of it. And my explanation of why is is the most obvious version is IPOs, right? You look at Google, Facebook, Uber, they're creating thousands of millionaires, and LA hasn't had that. If you look at Snapchat, it was actually a top-heavy equity company. It maybe created 100 millionaires, if, le if not less, relative to those companies. Um, but the other one actually is a funny quote that an LP said to me, which is, you know, L.A. rich people like to spend money, not invest it. And the culture of L.A., and I, and I hate to shit talk L.A., the, you know, L.A.'s technology scene that we all love is amazing. And I'm putting my own capital and, and career behind it. But the overall culture of L.A., I find that uh, is an investment focus. So in Silicon Valley, everyone made their money from venture-backed investing in companies, so they re-put into it. In New York, it's not tech, but they come from investment worlds, Wall Street. In L.A., the, imp the impetus and the kind of average wealthy person isn't thinking about angel investing. And so how can we train more people into this world is, is certainly an opportunity for all of us. And, and I love inv co-investing with operator angels. Right. So I think that that's true for a lot of the sort of tech adjacent spaces. Mm -hmm. So the people who, um, you know, maybe in Hollywood, they may be in sports. Um, and so they might not actually know how to do good angel investing or just how to get into tech, how to look at tech companies. Yeah. But the trend that I've seen a lot of is the people who are in tech, like the founders, they're getting in LA, it seems like they're getting sort of swooped up a bit as scouts right now. Do you see that? That That's a new, in the last year, phenomenon. Uh, some of the bigger funds in town have started programs. Some of the bigger outer funds have found, have found their founders here. So as more Bay Area Series A, Series B funds are funding LA companies, they then turn around to those founders and said, hey, here's some scout money. Um, that's great. I hope that's a positive trend. I've had a most of my last couple of rounds have had some number of scouts in them. Um, I, I'm also very hesitant when people throw around the brand name of the fund they're a scout for as if that has any value to the company. In some ways, it can often be a, a negative indicator and certainly oversold. I don't know what you guys have seen there. Oh, I, I feel exactly the same way. I think if you have money from a Sequoia scout or name, of, name brand VC scout, uh, it's great to have the money. You should take it, but don't advertise it. D don't definitely don't over advertise it uh and 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 for me um really think about who the person is that you're taking the money from uh, meaning uh you love sequoia but that person giving you the money isn't going to be valuable to your company or could be even annoying it's not worth it because you're not going to get anything from sequoia i've seen that version on the other side i know some scouts for big funds who are ceos of companies and great operators and you'd love to have their money and you don't care where it came from as long as they're going to put their time and effort to help you grow your business. But shouldn't they be, um, uh, like, w why would they be a distraction? Like, why do you have to think about who your angels are? Like, can't, don't they play such a minor role? 
Maybe I've- I, 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 so at my company pose, and this is an example I always give my founders, I had um, 17 investors, three real venture funds and 14 angels, I think was something around that. Um, and 10 of those angels never called me. Wasn't a problem. Uh, two of them were amazingly helpful operators. And two of them would call me all the time with the most annoying waste my time or afraid of losing their small amount of money things. And so you really do want to think about it because it can become a real pain in your neck for not a lot of money. And, um, you know, I generally want more angels in the deal, but uh, vetting who they are and how they're going to engage with you over time is important. Where do you get a lot of your deal flow from? And do you get deal flow from angels or, or do you bring angels in when you're investing? Yeah. Um, well, the, to the latter question, definitely yes. We love to find a deal. Let's say it's a 600K round. We're putting in 400K. That's what we do here at Precede. Um, that 200K is optimally split up amongst four to eight angels, 25 to 50K checks. And we're hunting angels who we believe can be value-add to that business. Have you been a CEO of a related company? Are you an executive at a big company that might be in that space? Um, we did an investment in a company in the trucking and logistics space, and we brought in two of the highest-ranking Uber, f- former Uber employees as angels into the deal. And they have had... they they. They don't always aren't always there, but when we call them, they have the most specific, valuable answers. Um, so we love creating and bringing in those angels to our deals. As far as deal flow from the angels, I think that's something we all want to work on here in LA and and trade back and forth. And um, you know, the, the one corollary is I'd say the best angels have rightfully recognized that their best access is a little bit later. If I'm the CEO of a really well-known company in LA, uh, I get kissed into highly competitive series a's even series b's so why should i waste my time sorting through all these early companies when i can get kissed into the pre-vetted best ones but won't they get a lot more ownership if they come in like you're coming in i don't think they're thinking about as portfolio right uh, you know structuring as we are um some of them love the early so love the helping love the hands-on but some of them are just i i'm running my own company these are often ones that are currently operating so i'm running my own company i'm very busy and i'm just going to take the pre-vetted best deals when they come to me so I've had the good fortune of knowing you for a while, and we've, as a result, looked at some of the same deals. Um, and you picked a few that, that we didn't pick that have turned out to be fantastic. And then um, just from, from my own learning, I'd love to hear how you were able to make those decisions. So let's talk about um, Tala or Clutter, one of those two that, that we both saw around the same time. Yeah. Um, well, Clutter is, is, is certainly very close to, to, to my heart. It was one of my first investments and, and our largest investment to date. And um, uh, that one, I think, uh, comes back to some of the, the theses I come at from a founder, which is uh, the founders of that company um, were non-traditional. One of the founders didn't come from the tech world. Um, and it took a couple of meetings to break through what his special skills were and, and get there. And the other founder was actually uh, a chairman at the time and eventually came on full time. But I had a personal relationship with him as a previous founder of his company. And I could see his dedication, his focus and had some kind of edge into the fact that he would join full time. Um, and so um, it was very much a bet and, and a little extra work on those two. Um, the flip side is that one to me just always struck a chord on business model innovation. Mm-hmm. You have uh, this bu- this business of self storage that's really just REITs parking land until they can sell it for a condo. They employ one person. 
it's not very helpful. And the whole model of moving the storage out into the desert at a way cheaper real estate cost, but then bridging the gap with service creates kind of one of the best dynamics that I've blogged about, which is a better experience at a cheaper price, right? The UberX is kind of the core example. It's better and cheaper than a taxi. Uh, and when you hit those, it's rare, but, but seeing that they started to hit it, uh, that one really struck a chord for me and, and outweighed kind of the obvious reasons to pass, and which have proven to be true, by the way. Very expensive capital cost to build up this business. They've raised $300 million to date. Um, this company, I believe, will be a multi, multi-billion dollar IPO one day, but it will take a lot of time and capital to get there. Do you think it's easier or harder to invest at that very early stage? So in some ways, it's easier because you don't have to decide whether you're really betting on the product, but maybe that's harder because you don't have as many data points. I think it takes a bit of... Um, ability to recognize and and be okay with the portfolio being so early that you're not you're rarely going to know and so if you always expect to only have so many data if there's five data points that make an obvious investment if i can get maybe two or three of them i'm going to go for it because my whole portfolio is built around that risk um, i have to be okay with that and it's i think one of the things that's been good for me as a founder um, coming into this versus maybe a trained VC who worked at a big fund that did series A and series B. I think I look for different things. I look for really early kind of signals and I'm okay with the risk, the same risk I took founding my own company versus having learned at IVP how to be a growth investor and then trying to be an early stage, you know, first check angel. And is wonder, uh, you guys invest only when the founder is raising less than a million or is that about the, the sweet spot? Yeah. So we are, we target, uh, five to six year deals a year, um, investing up to half a million dollars, leading or co-leading rounds of up to a million, maybe a million and a half tops. Um, so that's really our sweet spot. That is pre-seed. That is what we do. Um, I will say one or twice a year we have our exception. There's some founder that I have a deep, long relationship with that this happened recently who ha has a previous exit and a Bay Area firm led a $10 million round, and I put my small check into that larger round. Um, it's not our model, but once or twice a year, you just have to do it when you believe in someone. And unfortunately, the market believes in them so much, they're willing to pay more than, than you are. So since you're, you're LA targeted and pre-seed targeted, do you have any other targets that, that narrow that down? Or are you willing to look at any company in any vertical? Yeah, so we really pride ourselves in being willing to look at anything. I like to say if I already knew what the next big thing was, hopefully I'd already invested in it. Um, and so if I define a bunch of things we do, then I'm leaving out all the things that I could don't know exist that I'd like to invest in. I certainly wouldn't have said self-storage. Um, but with that said, uh, we do really want a software component. Um, if it's you know deep hard tech or biotech, that's not for us. Um, but we've done great in things that touch clean energy, agriculture, uh, finance, uh, healthcare. Um, so we're willing to look at anything. And, and I think being true early stage, high risk, like I say, almost angel capital here in LA, we want to see everything. And so while up the stack VCs say, hey, only send me your two best deals a year, we want to see every deal. We're combing through as much as we can. And that's kind of part of our kind of sourcing focus is the volume actually that we look at so, so i met a couple founders that you had recently invested in just last night or the night before uh -huh. at, at where you spoke and uh they were earlier than early i think one of them hadn't even yes. left his full-time position yet yeah. or at least his team hadn't um where are you finding those um 
you know, those, that's part of me adjusting as well, right? Seed funds are coming down market. Everybody's, you know, A funds are coming into seed, seeds going earlier. That is actually, that specific example was a founding team that I met in a previous business that was unable to raise money. Um, I, I spent a lot of time with them in the room telling them, you seem really talented. I just really don't like the business you're building. And I actually don't believe that you have the founder market fit that you're, you're starting because you think it sounds like a good business versus you really believe in it. And actually off that pass, which I think was a little tough for them in the room, to be honest, because uh, I was kind of blunt in a way I'm not always. Uh, we built a six month relationship of, well, let's think about what else you could build and who what, who else are you as a founder? And that relationship blossomed into ideating together and, you know, kind of getting the opportunity to invest so early because I was helping them come up with the concept that they were actually working on. That's terrific. Yeah. Are there any uh, kind of companies or pitches that you're you're feeling are saturated right now? Are there, are there? I mean, I think we all have our bugbears on that. Like, yeah, I mean, you hear, you know, in LA especially, anything like influencer marketing, influencer networks, you hear that a lot. Um, tons of D 2 C consumer brands, the the latest home care this or or whatever. Um, you know, you always got to be careful when people are throwing buzzwords like AI or autonomous into pitches, robotics. Um, but, you know, I try to not rule anything out without taking at least a pick, a peek to see if there's something there. Because um, I think some of my best investments have been in spaces that at the time felt crowded, right? When, when Clutter raised, it was actually kind of the height of Uber 4. And, right. and that was and there was on, Make Space as well. There were a couple other there folks. There was competitors. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, everyone was kind of, I think, on the wrong side of Uber 4. And, and I never thought of clutter as an uber for i thought of it as its own business um so um i i, I want to be careful not to to do that so to my own point influencers are a real and i think lasting part of our future micro economies and gig economies so i probably should be spending more time trying to figure out where the opportunities are great uh can we move into random personal random personal questions i guess so Fantastic. <laughs> i'm not sure this is either random or personal but i i really want to know uh is there conventional wisdom that you hear from VCs that you disagree with? Um, there, there are definitely a couple things that come to mind that I would say I don't. Not a hard disagree, but I would question. Which one of them is around uh, founder updates? You know, as a VC, I certainly really appreciate founder updates. We have a a co uh, investment where a founder writes some of the best updates you've ever seen, um, and we really appreciate him for that, and it gives him clarity of what he's doing. Um, but I will say personally of 46 investments now, there's a probably negative correlation or, or at least a anti-correlation, which is the best companies in my portfolio do not send updates, never have, and are less likely to send them. Um, and so I think some founders, that's part of how they work, how they get their mind together, how they prep and think about things. But I think a lot of the like best operating hands-on founders, as long as I trust they're deep in their business and they're doing the right things, are not taking time to update a bunch of random investors. I'm, I guess I'm in the mainstream because I, I really think differently about it. And when I think about it, it's not so much so everybody can know, but so so that the founder is maximizing the leverage from that team of investors. Yeah. And also, maybe more importantly, prepping for a bad day. If you don't hear from a company for a long time because things are going well, that's that's totally fine. If you don't hear from a company for a, for a long time and then you hear that something's wrong, I don't feel like the people who weren't kept up to date are really in the trenches with the founder. Yeah. Uh, but we can agree to disagree. I, I, it's not a complete disagreement. Like Those are valid points. 
um, you know, the the cynical VC would say, well, we're playing for the upside winners, not the down downside losers. And so helping, <laughs> I, I'm not cynical. I help every company. I've been in too many trenches with too many companies. I know weren't going anywhere, but I enjoy doing it. Um, I would just say that. To me, I don't push it, at least as a VC. I, I appreciate it when it comes. I try to encourage it a little bit, but it's not. I've seen a lot of success without it, so I don't believe it's a must-do. Um, the other one would be um, you know, thinking about uh, decks. So VCs love to ask for decks. Um, I love the ability to both be pitched and for my companies to pitch and try and get into picks, pitches without decks. You know, and this is maybe more conventional, but, you know, ask for if a VC asks for a deck to me, it's a negative indicator. It's like, I'm not that interested. I would rather look at your PowerPoint and pass without having to meet you, you know, push to get that meeting without a deck and, and try to p do that pitch without a deck. OK, and this one, I'll be point counterpoint. Um, so I think maybe it's because I'm new to investing. I need to read the deck. I feel like it's so helpful for me to then be able to ask more intelligent questions because it gives, I'm, I think I'm not quite as fast on my feet of thinking about wh where, what I'm worried about. And so I don't know what questions to ask if I haven't sort of mulled on it for 24 hours. Yeah, um, it, it's a tough trade-off. And I would say if you're going to later stage rounds with partnerships, uh, I tell my companies, you need to have a deck and like you're focused with this one GP, but there's four other GPs who are really going to pop in and out and you need to have a deck for that purpose. So it's not a complete anti-deck pitch by me, but just a, um, if I think of the, the optimal relationship building with VCs and that first partner who you really want to buy into your broader vision, if you can get further along without a deck, it feels like a more organic starting place to build a relationship. Well, Dustin, we'd love, if we're ever investing downstream from you, um, <laughs> I'd love to for you to tell your founders they can have their no, non-deck pitches come to David. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Noted. And then I'll ask for one afterwards so I could just remember everything. You can share with me. Um, let me ask you, how about a quote that you like that and, and how you apply it? Um, so one of my favorite quotes, and and um, we'll have to fact check this, but I'm pretty sure it's Bill Gates, which is people always overestimate what they can achieve in one year and underestimate what they can achieve in 10 years. And I certainly uh, look back at myself one year ago and 10 years ago regularly. I think this quote comes up to me maybe twice a year. And every time I say, yeah, I haven't done that much in a year. It's been a fine year. But like, you think back 10 years and you're like, wow, I was like an associate just getting into VC, thinking about starting a company 10 years ago. And I've since founded and sold the company and started a fund. And I'm on my second fund. That's a lot of progress in 10 years, not to mention gotten married and had a baby, um, where if you always are judging yourself too harshly on that one year curve where, you know, a year ago I was kind of doing the same thing I'm doing now, um, you're never, you might never be satisfied. And so it, as it relates to what you can achieve and also your expectations and judgment of yourself, I love that, you know, over, people overestimate what they can achieve in one year and underestimate what they can achieve. In That's 10. a great quote. Um, we talked about conventional wisdom from VCs to, sorry, from GPs to uh, to founders, but what about from LPs to GPs? Is there one thing that LPs you think focus too much on? Yeah, you know, this one is 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 self-serving, but you know, they ask a lot about your proprietary deal flow, right? And and listen, if I was a former Uber exec and I could start a fund and say I'm going to find all the best people coming out of Uber, that's a pretty good place to start a fund. And obviously, the PayPal mafia have done well by that, um, but that's not how. Every great company starts. Actually, a lot of the 
biggest hits were really outliers of that. And so um, LPs focusing on who you know and which fancy executives out of a company you focus on um, might work in the Bay Area, but uh, I'd argue it it, def- it works a lot less outside the Bay Area. I'd argue that you may over-focus in the easy areas in the Bay Area, and it comes back to my, my focus. Like I like found first-time founders from domain ex- that are domain experts that don't come from tech. And, and so actually, um, I say I don't have proprietary deal sourcing. I look at everything, and I'm willing to spend the time to try and understand things that don't look obvious at first and fund those as founders. And a lot of them, like Shivani Atala, weren't obvious at first, and that turned out to be great investments. Um, and so um, I always get a little frustrated when LPs are, feel like they're asking me, like, which executives at Airbnb and Twitter do I know as my deal sourcing? So maybe my final question is, Kind of going back to the the quote about what the world's going to look like in ten years or where you're going to be, like what 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 does success feel like for you? Big picture success for you? Um, am I including personal in here? Sure. Um, because I certainly I feel lucky every day I'm, I do this job. It's a great job. I wouldn't trade it for the world. I found I think my calling. I, I explicitly chose not to start another startup, but to start a venture fund, and I think it's my place. And so I'm very satisfied there. Um, I'm very satisfied, hopefully driving great returns to my LPs, but staying focused on what I know I'm best at, which is early in LA, which is not trying to raise a billion dollar fund just because I can, but servicing the early entrepreneurs in LA because I think I'm the best at servicing them. In a way, I might not be the best at servicing growth companies around the country. Um, and personally, you know, I, I really value that I get to focus on the geography and be home with my family. And I have a, a two month old son at home, which has been really exciting and eye opening and, um, continuing to build LA into a better city. Um, I've been doing, you know, more and more work as I know both of you have trying to get involved with the city, make LA a better place to live, um, help the less fortunate, help transportation. Um, we love, I personally love, and I think you guys are love the city and know it's one of the best places in the world to live and but it can always be better and so you know hopefully giving back to the city not just through our technology companies but through our broader efforts as well great that's terrific thank you so much for coming in dustin and it's been a pleasure to work with you all these years and i hope we have a lot more to do together going forward of course i i love working with you guys we have lots of investments together and this is really fun so thank you for having me Thank you for listening to LA Venture. If you enjoyed the show, please feel free to rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. It makes a big difference in helping others find the podcast. For more information on 10110 Ventures, please visit 10110.net.